week number three of this series that we are doing called Hidden Christmas. And this is, uh, I stole the title, uh, if, if Christians are allowed to steal, then I did. Um, I, I took the title from a new book by Pastor Tim Keller, who is a pastor in New York City. And he has observed something that I think he's bang on. And, you know, underneath all of the celebration of Christmas and all the, you know, the red, green and gold and the beautiful Christmas cards and all these things, underneath all of that, uh, if you look at the narratives in the Gospels of the story of Jesus, you see that it's actually a very rough story. And there are some truths in there that are kind of hidden under the surface uh, and if we look at the story, we can discover some powerful things. So I would encourage you to pick up a copy of his book. There's some thoughts that I have borrowed here and there uh, from what he has talked about. Last week, we talked about the idea of the mothers and fathers of Jesus. A bit of a strange title. You can listen to it online on our website if you like. Um, and I want to begin by addressing a question because we had the privilege last week of having a university professor in the audience. I did not know that he was a university professor. I probably would have been a bit nervous if I did. And he came to me at the end of the service and he, we had a great conversation. And he challenged me on, on a couple of things. And he said, you know, you talk about the incarnation and, you know, God becoming flesh as if it's unique. He said, it isn't unique. You have incarnations in world religion all over the place. And he was referring to, uh, in Hinduism, you have many such incarnations. And he said, they're very, very similar to the incarnation of Jesus. And he has a bit of a point. And I did try to address this last week. But I want you to understand something when it comes to this. Because those of you who, who really take this seriously, those of you who have kids, I guarantee you they're going to be challenged when they go into school. And if they stand up for their, their Christian faith and that, they'll, some university professor will say to them, oh, that's nonsense. Christianity is a copy from the pagan myths of Osiris, from the, the incarnation of Krishna, and all of these things. And just look for yourself and you'll see your pastor's lying to you, your church is lying to you, it's all a sham, it's all a copy. Let me challenge you with something. When you read the Gospels and you read the story of the Incarnation, you are talking about an eyewitness account of God coming into the world to be verified, to be touched, to be seen, to be heard by people. You will not find this in the Hindu avatars. You will not find this in Krishna. You will not find this in Osiris. Yes, there are slight uh, uh, similarities. You have many crucified saviors in pagan religions. It's true. You have virgin births. You have resurrections. You have these things. What you do not have is an eyewitness account. You can go and verify, you know, that Caesar Augustus was a real person, that Herod the Great was a real person, that there really were mangers, that Herod the Great really did, uh, you know, uh, do what he did. And all of these details can be corroborated, and the story and the eyewitness accounts that you read in the Gospels are there because they're challenging the reader to verify them. And you will not see this in any other religion or philosophy in the world. That's the first thing. Uh, second thing that he asked me, and he was shocked by the answer that I gave him. He said, I have a question for you. When Jesus rose from the dead and after his resurrection, did he give up his humanity? I.e., is he still human even today? And I looked at this university professor and I said, I'm not sure. And he said, wow, that's a startling answer. 
He said, every priest I've talked to doesn't say it like you do. I said, well, I'm not really sure. It's a tough question to answer because we see a little bit of that in the New Testament. But then we also see that Jesus is also quite different after his resurrection. Anyway, we had an amazing conversation. But you must be certain of this. When we talk about God becoming flesh in the person of Jesus, we are talking about something unseen in the way that it's recorded and in these eyewitness accounts that is unseen in all of human history. And this is the miracle uh, of the thing. And another uh, lesson for you, you know, when you're sharing your faith with your friends, because most of you are Christians in this place, probably all of you, uh, when you don't know an answer to a question, here's what you say. I don't know. Say it with me. I don't know. It's amazing when you say that. Because people say, oh, that's good. You're not a know-it-all then. You're not, the, you're not the Christian who knows everything. And sometimes that's very refreshing as you're talking with people. I want to talk to you about a subject today uh, that is very different for the Christmas season. And the title of the message today is A Sword in the Soul. A sword in the soul, talking about a very obscure passage in the Christmas story uh, from Luke chapter 2 and verses 21 to 35. And this is the encounter that Mary and Joseph and little baby Jesus have with a unique fellow by the name of Simeon in the grounds of the temple in Jerusalem. I'm going to read it to you uh, from Luke chapter 2 verses 21 uh, to 35. You can follow it along in your Bible, punch it up on your smartphone in the Bible's New Testament. Okay, On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, He was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, and this would be 33 days later, if you read the book of Leviticus, you'll see that. Uh, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem. This is from uh, Bethlehem where he was born. They take him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And then they would have to actually buy back the child or redeem the child. And this is what they came to do. And to offer, verse 24, a sacrifice in keeping with that which is said in the law, a pair of doves or two young pigeons from the book of Leviticus. Now it's interesting that sacrifice was for the poor. There was supposed to be another one but if the couple was too poor then they could come in with a pair of doves or two young pigeons and this is exactly what Mary and Joseph did. And here we go verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. You will not meet him anywhere except in the book of Luke who was righteous and and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. In other words, for the Messiah to come and Israel to be redeemed from Roman oppression and so forth. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Hmm. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, looking for who knows what, right? When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon 
took him in his arms and praised God. And watch closely what he says. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, just picture him holding his baby up like this. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, and the glory for your people, Israel. Wow, is that ever nice, right? But here's where the problems come. Verse 33, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. I mean, imagine a modern day baby dedication. I've done many of them. You know, where a child has a baby and we bring the baby before the congregation and we kind of show off the baby, you know, and we pray for the baby and the parents and we say, oh God, you know, we we pray for these parents to raise this baby in a God-fearing home. We pray for this baby and we and we do all of these things and sometimes we say very nice, very flowery words and sometimes even very powerful words and the parents are happy and everyone's happy and the paparazzi are taking pictures and it's just marvelous, right? So the child, the mother, the child's parents here, they marvel at what was said about Jesus. What amazing words. And then, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, His mother. Watch these words. This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel. And to be a sign that will be spoken against Mary. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. This is the baby dedication of the Lord Jesus. Very, very unusual. So let's take a look at it and see what we can learn. Uh, If you look at this fellow Simeon, who we meet only in the book of Luke, we're told that he's righteous, we're told that he's devout, we're told that he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. He seems to be a very spiritual person. He's close to, as it were, the Holy Spirit. He's led by the Holy Spirit. He's moved by the Holy Spirit. God has somehow promised him that he would see the Lord's Messiah before he died. Wow, I mean, very, very devout, religious, spiritual person. We should probably listen to what he says. And his baby dedication is, you know, lights out as far as baby dedications. I mean, you look at this language, uh, you know, my eyes have seen your salvation. Imagine the parents, you know, of this little baby. And and Simeon is talking about him as as if he's the Messiah. Well, he is. You know, my eyes have seen your salvation. He's for the Gentiles. He's for Israel. He's a light of revelation. It's marvelous. It's prophetic. It's powerful. What a great baby dedication. Let's take the pictures and let's go home. Well, the problem is he's got some words at the end that are very, very disturbing. Again, in verses 34 and 35, right? I'll read it again. This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of people in Israel. Many. He's not going to be a sign that is spoken for, Mary. 
He's a sign that's going to be spoken against. People are going to speak against your son. And people's thoughts are going to be revealed. That which they conceal is going to come to the front. The cards that they hold to their chest are going to come out on the table. And Mary, there is a sword that's going to pierce your soul also, too. Wow, I mean, this is, a, we would rather not have these words. We would rather not, uh, if, if the account didn't include them, we wouldn't complain. We wouldn't say, well, this thing is missing something. It seems like there's something left out. No, they seem to be there and they're very disturbing. They're very harsh. May I suggest to you that this is evidence of the authenticity of the thing. If you're going to invent a story about Jesus, you're not going to put this in. It's very awkward. It's very disturbing. Uh, It's very, very harsh. Um, And we're talking about Christmas time. Christmas is supposed to be a time of joy and celebration and light and fun and all of these things and happiness. And yet you have these disturbing Christmas words. This is part of the Christmas narrative. How many of you have seen the the, uh, story of Ebenezer Scrooge or read it? A Christmas carol. Do you know this story? Two of you, three of you. You're either asleep, your brain is frozen, or you're lying. One or the other. Okay. We, a lot of us know this story. How many of you know the story of, for example, the Grinch and how the Grinch stole Christmas? Yes. Why do people write these stories at Christmas time? Well, because there is a little something of us that relates to these characters. If we're being really, really honest, And we look at Christmas and we look at, okay, we're supposed to celebrate, we're supposed to be happy, we're supposed to have joy, you know, we're supposed to spend time with the outlaws, the outlaws are coming over, or we're going to the outlaws' house, that's a joke for those of you who are married. I'm trying to unthaw your brains. We have the, oh, we say, okay, we're supposed to be happy, we're supposed to be joyful, we're supposed to celebrate. But why is it that there's something inside of us that says, well, wait a second, isn't this a little unrealistic? Like, doesn't life go on even at Christmas time? Can I tell you how many funerals I've done in the Christmas season? Like, I'm just shocked that people continue to die even at Christmas. Nobody stops. Like, life continues to go on. And sometimes we look at Christmas, if we're being really honest, and we relate to a guy like Ebenezer Scrooge, or we relate to a Grinch, because we say, you know, all this materialism, and all this happiness, and all this celebration, but life just seems to go on. It just seems to be as miserable as it always was. So what's supposed to be so different about this time of year? And sometimes those characters have a little bit of a point to them. And they say, well, you know, you guys are not realistic with this whole happiness and peace and joy thing because life really does go on. And this is a this is a reality that we would rather push aside at Christmas time. But the truth is, Christmas can be a very lonely time for people. It can be a time of isolation. It can be a time of depression. And this is sometimes the things that we have in our hearts at Christmas, but we're afraid to admit them, except when we watch Ebenezer Scrooge and the Grinch. Well, the reality in the gospel record is that there is some some truth to this. Life is not always happy 
even at Christmas time. Life can be difficult, and here, Mary, I'm telling you, there's going to be something coming because of your baby, and it's not going to be necessarily too nice. So let's look at the words that Simeon uh, uh, used here in some detail. Uh, First he says, your child, Mary, is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel. The falling and the rising. And this, while it may sound a little vague, who's he talking about? It's probably talking about the political scene in uh, Israel and what would happen to the leadership there as a result of Jesus coming into the world. And we see this happen right away. Uh, Herod the Great is very, very disturbed by the announcement that this baby is now on the scene. And what does he do? He goes and executes uh, all of the Hebrew boys that he can find up to the age of two years old. Wow, I mean, that's a very, very harsh edge to the story. We know a little bit about Herod the Great from secular literature, and this fits pretty well with his character. He was quite a harsh uh, person. He had a number of family members executed. Uh, He was very paranoid about people trying to steal his throne. And here he's got this story of this Messiah coming into the world as a little baby, and people are starting to take this seriously. Well, he wants to go and deal with it. That there's an uprising even right away when Jesus is born. And as we read through the gospel story, what do we see? We see these political leaders who have all kinds of problems. Right up to the execution of Jesus on the cross, we've got Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. He's stuck between a rock and a hard place there. He's got all this pressure from from the people. He's dealing with his boss, uh, the, the Caesar at the time. There's a rising and a falling that's taking place. There's a shaking that's taking place because of Jesus. We see the high priest uh, that's put into a corner. We see the people who succeed, Herod the Great, they're put into a corner. There's a rising and a falling that's taking place there. Um, even the Apostle Paul, who was, uh, who was a great Jewish man who was persecuting uh, the church, what happens to him? He is, he is brought down low by Jesus himself and humbled by Jesus himself. There's a, there's a rising and a falling that's going to take place, Mary, because of your son. He's going to rock the boat In this land. That's what's going to happen. It's disturbing. What was she wondering when she heard this? Well, uh, how's that going to happen? Is he going to be okay, my son? Is he going to live? Is he going to die through all of this? A rising and a falling? Well, even further, Simeon goes and he says, Your son is going to be a sign that will be spoken against. People are going to speak against him. He is a sign, presumably from God, but people will speak against this person. Your son is going to have opposition. People are going to speak against your son. And what do we see when we read the Christmas story? We see he's spoken against over and over and over again. We read through the whole gospel record. We see he's spoken against over and over again. You've got the ultra-religious Pharisees and the like saying that he's the devil himself. You've got people saying he's an imposter. You've got people saying he's a phony. You've got people saying don't follow him. He is spoken against. He's controversial. He's 
got an edge. He is not spoken for. He's not particularly popular. He's spoken against. And this by the ultra-religious, the ultra-orthodox of the day to the point where they want him dead. This is what's going to happen to your son, Mary. He is going to be spoken against, not spoken for. And what else? So that, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. So you're going to see, Mary, by the way that your son is spoken against, people are going to put their cards on the table. They will not be able to be neutral about your son. They're either going to be for him or they're going to be against him. And most of the people are going to be against him. This is what you're going to see. He is going to reveal the thoughts of people. This is the way your son is going to live. Very controversial figure. He is not a people pleaser. He's not going to please people. He's going to be very controversial. He's going to have an edge. And people are going to let let it be known what they think What is concealed will be revealed, Mary. And Mary, you are no exception. A sword is going to pierce your own soul too. In other words, your son is about the business of piercing the soul. And you, Mary, are no exception. Can I just say as an aside... Uh, the idea that Mary was somehow holier than everybody else and was a perpetual uh, virgin and all this other stuff that we see in tradition in some settings, you will not find a trace of this in the Gospel record. In the Gospels, Mary is a normal person just like everybody else. And Simeon is saying, Mary, you're no exception. A sword is going to pierce your soul too. The word for sword there, he could have used too, the writer Luke. The the word that he uses is for a great big sword. Not a little little knife like this. There's going to be a moment, Mary, where something very traumatic is going to happen to you as well because of your son. You say, what? This is so disturbing. This is so strange. What does this all mean? Why is this in the Christmas story? What can we learn from this? Let me give you a a few hidden truths here. Number one, we must distinguish the purpose of Christmas and the effect of Christmas. The purpose of Christmas and the effect, right? When we look at the purpose of Christmas, what do we, what do we like to think about? Well, you know, Luke chapter 2, and the shepherds were living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of God shone around them, and they were terrified, and the angel said, don't be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. He's the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And a great company of the heavenly host uh, were praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, peace to those on whom His favor rests. This is the purpose of Christmas, that God wants to bring peace to the world. 
Because of the incarnation of Jesus and because of His death on the cross, God wants to bring peace between Him and humanity, between humanity and humanity. Even this is the purpose of Christmas. But what is the effect of it? What is the, What happens to people in this whole thing and how do people react? Well, you see all kinds of things uh, in the Gospels. You know, in, in Isaiah chapter 9, we even talked about it a couple of weeks ago. He, he will be called the Wonderful Counselor and the Mighty God and the Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. So, what happens after? And how do people react? Well, it's very different. Even from Jesus Himself, Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 36, this is the words of Jesus. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace. These are the words of Jesus, but a sword. For I have come to turn, and this is from the prophet Micah in the Old Testament, a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. See, well, what is that? Why did Jesus say that? Well, again, the difference between the purpose and the effect When Jesus comes into the lives of people, there's division that's going to happen in families, in in relationships. It's the, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And you're going to see division is going to take place. And Jesus is saying it. Yes, the ultimate goal is peace. But there's conflict that precedes this. And we see this even from these... Harsh words of Jesus that you're going to see households split because of the gospel. And some of you in the audience have experienced that firsthand. When you talk to people about your Christianity and about your relationship with God, even sometimes in your own family, you see that there can be, oh boy, various kinds of reactions. I've experienced this personally because I come from a Jewish background. When a Jewish person uh, begins to follow Jesus and then becomes a preacher, well, you, you get all kinds of reactions. Okay, And they're not always pleasant. And this is what Jesus is saying. I have come and there is going to be conflict as a result of me. So if that is happening to you, don't be surprised. You're in very good company. Uh, In Mark chapter 3, we see it even in the life of Jesus himself. We see his own family turning on him. Uh, He enters a house, Mark chapter 3, verse 20, and uh, there's this big crowd that gathers, and this happens often. He and his disciples aren't even able to eat. When his family heard about this, verse 21, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he's out of his mind. He's a nut. Our brother, our son, he's a, he's a nut. He's out of his mind. We need to go and save him from himself, you know. And the teachers of the law come down from Jerusalem and they say, this guy is a devil. This is how he's driving demons out. And Jesus has to deal with them. And, and then his mother and his brothers arrive, verse 31. And uh, standing outside, someone calls to him and a crowd sitting there. And they say, Jesus, your, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you and you know what his answer is he says who are my mother and my brothers 
wow, this, this seems harsh. And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother and my brother and my sister, uh, etc. Mark chapter 3. In John uh, chapter 7, we see the same type of thing. Uh, Jesus is in Galilee. Uh, he's, he's there at the Feast of Tabernacles, a high Jewish holiday. And his brothers say to him, you know, get out of here, leave Galilee, go to Judea, um, so your disciples may see the things that you do. Because no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, announce yourself to the world. Very sarcastic. And the writer says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Even in the life of Jesus, we see this thoughts of many hearts revealed. This is the effect of Christmas that we see. Uh, Hidden truth number two. Um, Jesus causes public and private Conflict. He causes this. By his very nature, there's conflict that happens. It's not because of he, he desires it and he wants to cause it. It's because of who he is. You see how people will divide. Either they're for him or either they're against him. And there's this public conflict. But there's also something that takes place on the inside of a person. And a tremendous conflict within uh, that happens again from Luke chapter 2 verses 34 and 35. Uh, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Uh, and it, this isn't necessarily a pleasant thing. Your, your child's going to be a sign that is spoken against them. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Speaking of that private conflict within Some people say the word of God here is the Bible. If you look at Hebrews closely, it's probably referring specifically to Jesus himself who causes this kind of, uh, there's a, God is judging the thoughts and the attitudes of my heart. There's a private conflict that's taking place as I consider Jesus and who he is. I was watching the news this week and there's a very funny uh, but sad video circulating on the internet of a pastor who's out in a mall in Texas and he sees a Santa, you know, in one of these malls and all these kids who want to go and sit on Santa's lap and the pastor's out there preaching in the mall and he's saying to all of the parents and all of the children, Santa Claus is not real. Don't believe what he's telling you. There's no such thing as Santa Claus and all the children and the younger children, especially they're, they're looking at the guy and they're saying, is this true? Is what he's saying true? You can see it in their faces. And the parents have a great scowl on their faces. You know, they're like, and one parent goes up to the camera and he says, Get out of here. What are you doing? Go leave. And I'm sure this pastor will boast about his, uh, his great preaching and all of his. I mean, what a foolish thing to do. If you're going to win people to Christ, don't do it that way. Uh, but for him, oh yes, uh, this is a great public conflict. Well, that's not what's being referred to here. Sometimes, just because you're trying to serve God and live Christianly, you're going to face public conflict. You may face it at the workplace, where people say, well, why aren't you doing this? 
Why aren't you cheating on your hours? Why aren't you shaving a little bit off this and a little bit off that? We all do it. How come you don't do it? What makes you better than us? And there's conflict that arises because you're showing that you're living in a Christian way, trying to live a godly life, and all of a sudden there's this kind of persecution. It's not because you're screaming at Santa Claus. It's just because you're living your life. And this is what happens when a person decides to follow Jesus. Oftentimes, there is this type of of conflict that takes place. Uh, I love this quote from uh, J.C. Ryle. This is an Anglican bishop from the 19th uh, century who talks about uh, Christians. And this is what he says. The child of God, here I'm speaking about the inner conflict. The child of God has two great marks about him. He may be known for his inward warfare as well as his inward peace. Not only the peace, but also the warfare. And this is what he says. There are thousands of men and women who go to churches and chapels every day. 19th century Anglican uh, uh, bishop. Thousands of men and women who go to churches and chapels every Sunday and call themselves Christians. Their names are in the baptismal register. They are reckoned Christians while they live. They are married in a Christian marriage service. They are buried as Christians where they die. But you never see any fight about their religion or spiritual strife or exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring. Uh, They know literally nothing at all. Such Christianity, he says, is not the Christianity of the Bible. It is not the religion which the Lord Jesus founded and His apostles preached. True Christianity is a fight. And it can be an inward fight. And sometimes there are Christians, I believe, even in this room, and you experience that, but you you think there's something wrong with you because there's this inner conflict. As you try to live for God, you find that there's something else fighting against this. Well, join the club. Uh, Paul talks about this at length in the book of Romans. There is an inner conflict that takes place. And this is caused by the presence of the Lord Jesus. As He comes into your life, He has a tendency of rearranging house. And sometimes this can be quite painful, uh, but quite necessary at the same time. Hidden truth number three, peace is preceded by conflict. You don't have peace unless you first have a conflict that has to be fixed. Otherwise, you wouldn't even know what peace is. Peace comes through a process. And often the process is preceded by some type of conflict. And then you get to peace. And then you see the promise that God has for us in the manger. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 14 to 18 puts it this way about Jesus. For He Himself is our peace who has made the two groups one, talking about Jewish people and non-Jewish people, and has destroyed the barrier between them, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace." And in one body, that's his physical body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. 
Well, the cross is conflict by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we have access to the Father by one spirit. You see it there, this this time of great conflict in the life of Jesus as he does what? Faces the cross for us. That sword in the soul that's mentioned to Mary could refer to the fact that she is standing there while she's watching her son being crucified on a cross. If you go to the last slide there, where you've got the the picture of Mary and Joseph and the little baby, and you've got three crosses in the background. The artist did that for me, and I love this picture because this speaks of the whole thing. You cannot talk about the cradle without also talking about the cross. You cannot talk about peace on earth until you have the conflict of Jesus facing the sword for us. And Mary, you are going to see it. A sword is going to pierce your own soul too. This is the baby that is yours. This is what is going to happen. And for all of us, great, great truth here. Um, The peace that we have with God was secured for us by the Lord Jesus when He went to the cross. He faced the ultimate sword in the soul for you and for me so that we could come to that place where we now have peace with God and a relationship with Him.